Well, uh, good morning, River City. My name's Brandon. I'm one of the pastors here. Grateful to get to join you for worship this morning. Uh, if you're new or visiting, especially want to say welcome to you. Uh, we'd love to get to know you. Love to help you get plugged into community here. And like John was saying, small groups is one of the best ways to do that. So I'd encourage you to check one of those out. Just get into relationships. Get to know people. Uh, excited as well to invite you into our summer sermon series. We're calling it Jesus on Every Page. And uh, what we're doing this summer is taking a look at a bunch of different passages throughout the Old Testament and highlighting how all of them, whether you've heard of them before or not, aren't ultimately about just like teaching some moral lesson, but instead they're primarily meant to point us towards the person and the work of Jesus. They're, they're not just meant to show you who you should be or who you shouldn't be like or what you should or shouldn't be doing. They're meant to point us towards Christ and the gospel. Sally Lowe-Jones puts it this way. She says, the Bible is a story. At the center of that story is Jesus. Every story whispers his name. He's like the missing piece of the puzzle that makes all the others fit together and reveals the beautiful picture of the gospel. And like we've said from the beginning of our series, the, the idea that the whole Bible, not just the, not just the New Testament, is actually about God and the gospel, that's not something some brilliant pastor or theologian invented. That's not some genius idea somebody came up with. Uh, that's what Jesus himself taught. In John 5, we saw how he tells the religious leaders that the life and blessing and favor from God that they're looking for by studying the Old Testament scriptures so diligently that it can only be found if they'll see him as the thing to which all of them point. And likewise, in Luke 24, after his resurrection, Jesus, beginning with Moses and the prophets, he describes and tells the disciples all that is told about him throughout the scriptures. And so at the heart of our series this summer is, is learning to read the Old Testament the way Jesus did, with him at the center of all of it. And so this morning, we're going to do just that as we study a story found in the pages of one of my favorite books in the Bible in the Old Testament. It's the book of Ruth. Now, uh, Ruth is a really short book, just four chapters, and yet Ruth contains one of probably the most compelling storylines in all of the Bible. There's tragedy and loss, there's despair and triumph, there's hope and loyalty and sacrifice, even a little bit of romance. It's, it's got something for everybody in, in the book of Ruth. But what makes the story of Ruth even better is that, is that the story of Ruth is part of a much bigger story. You see, the, it's part of the God's greater story, God's sovereign plan to redeem a people for himself and in so doing, uh, bring them from emptiness to fullness, from sorrow to joy and from hurt to hope. And so, so the book of Ruth isn't just a story about something that happened 3,000 years ago. Instead, it's a, it's a glimpse into a story that you and I get to be a part of today, God's great story of redemption in the lives of people. And I can't wait to show it to you this morning. And so with that in mind, let's pray, and then we'll, uh, we'll dive into God's Word together. Lord Jesus, thanks so much uh, that it's you on every page, that all the stories aren't just moral lessons with some examples about who we shouldn't or shouldn't be like or what we should or shouldn't be doing, but instead all the stories are meant to point to you. And so, God, we come to you this morning needing, not just wanting the stories to be about you, but needing them to be. And so we pray as we see you in the pages of the book of Ruth, might the good news of your redeeming purposes in the world be good news to us this morning. God, we, your redemption is such good news. Help us to see it in the pages of Ruth this morning so that we might worship you, that we might enjoy you, that we might love you all the more and that we might live for your glory in the world, we pray. Amen. 
All right, well, like I mentioned, the book of Ruth is a short little book, four chapters, but uh, it's more than we have time to study just all in one morning. And so what I'm going to do is kind of sum up the first couple of chapters, and then we're going to take a look a little more closely at chapter four, kind of the, the climax of the whole story. But the book obviously begins in chapter one with this grand story of redemption, and it begins in the context of this situation that's kind of gone from, from bad to worse to full-on catastrophic. The story of Ruth, it takes place in the time of the Judges, which we saw last week in Samson's story, is this period in Israel's history that's characterized by sin and rebellion and God's people running from him and ignoring him. Things had gotten so bad that there was a famine in the promised land, right? This this utter catastrophe. And in the midst of all this, we meet a guy in the early pages of of Ruth, a guy named Elimelech, who decides that he's going to move his family out of the promised land to a land uh, known as Moab. It was this kind of evil, pagan, sexually perverse place. And and shock of all shocks, uh, it doesn't go well, right? Five verses into the whole book of Ruth, he's dead. His sons have married pagan women and then died themselves. And so his, his left his wife, Naomi, with only her two daughters-in-law. And she's lost everything. She's lost her home, her family, her future. And this picture at the outset of the book of Ruth is one of complete and utter devastation. But all hope wasn't lost because in the midst of all the sin and all the death and all the rebellion, what the writer of Ruth makes clear is that God was not absent. He wasn't far off. He wasn't disengaged. He wasn't uninterested. Instead, behind the scenes, he is sovereignly and lovingly pursuing the good of his people. And and so Naomi, she hears about how God had visited his people and provided food for them. And so she decides to go back to her hometown in Bethlehem. And she urges her daughters-in-law to stay back and start new lives in Moab. And and one of them does, but Ruth, who becomes the main character in our story, she, she refuses. And instead, she offers this incredible declaration of faith and commitment, not only to Naomi, but more importantly to God. In verse 16 of chapter 1, she tells Naomi, where you go, I'll go. Where you stay, I'll stay. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. And so in spite of this invariably hard road ahead of them, Ruth was all in. She'd hitched her train to God and to his people, and that was the only way forward for her. And so these two women, they head back to Bethlehem just as the harvest season is about to begin. And neither of them have any idea what God has in store for them in, in the coming weeks in those harvest fields. And so the curtain rises on chapter two of the book, and Ruth goes out into the harvest fields to pick up leftover grain. It was a practice known as gleaning. And and by God's sovereign and good hand, she finds herself in the fields of a man named Boaz, who becomes for Ruth and Naomi the, the personification of God's redeeming favor in their lives. His grace, his kindness, his compassion, his generosity, his protection, they're all embodied in this man named Boaz. And Ruth is stunned by this abundant favor that Boaz shows her. She was a poor, widowed, Moabite woman. No one noticed her except to look down on her and to deride her, and yet Boaz shows her this lavish favor. And so the question that you're left asking in the middle of chapter 2 is why? Why would he show such favor to her? Ruth herself asked this, and Boaz responds, by telling her that the reason he's shown her such abundant favor isn't because he's noticed her sacrificial actions and wants her to know that God rewards good behavior. But instead, he tells her explicitly that that it's clear that her actions had stemmed from a choice that she made to trust God and to take refuge under his wings of protection. 
And Boaz is showing her the embodiment of God's redeeming care for her. So by the end of chapter 2, things are going really well. Not only is Ruth's stomach full, but she returns to Naomi with more grain than either of them could ever have hoped for. And, and Ruth doesn't even realize how good things have actually been because uh, she, tells her day, she tells about her day to Naomi and how she found herself in the fields of Boaz gleaning. And, and Naomi helps her to see that this is such good news because Boaz wasn't just a, a godly man who had generously showed Ruth favor. He was, in fact... They're one of their guardian redeemers, Naomi tells her. He was a, a family member who could redeem and rescue and provide for Naomi and for Ruth. And not only for their need for food, but more importantly, he could be a provider for their need for family and their need for a future. And so by that point as a reader, you're, you're getting pretty stoked, right? And you can kind of see where the story is headed, and there might be a few wedding bells kind of ringing in the background. My wife is ready to give me one of those really nice snuggles because she's like, ah, oh, the story's about to end in a happy ever after kind of way. And, and yet chapter two ends on this incredibly anticlimactic note, right? Ruth just spent the rest of the harvest season gleaning in Boaz's fields, and day after day, nothing. Like, he doesn't call, he doesn't text, he doesn't follow up, right? Like, there's, there's no, like, okay, I guess that was all that was there, right? The harvest is almost complete. Time's running out. Ruth's temp job gleaning in the fields is almost over. They're about to go their separate ways, and, and so in chapter three, Naomi hatches a plan. Her mother-in-law, Naomi, hatches a plan, and if we're honest, as plans go, it's not good. It's not really a great plan, right? Um, not only is it risky, it's a bit risque as well, right? And uh, Ruth is supposed to go to Boaz on the final night of the harvest in the middle of the night, wake him up, and basically propose to him that he proposes to her, right? And uh, it might not have been the most solid plan, but time's running out, and so Ruth follows her mother-in-law's advice, and she goes to Boaz on the threshing floor, and she asks him to be their guardian redeemer, to marry her and to raise up a son who could continue on their family line. And Boaz responds with this resounding yes. Not only is Boaz willing to redeem Ruth, he's honored that she would even want him to, but there's a problem. You see, to be a redeemer, you not only had to be willing, you had to be able, you had to have the resources and the right to act as the redeemer. And so while Boaz was willing and had the resources, he, he didn't have the right to do it. There was another man who was closer than he, and it was only if this other guy's unwilling and unable to redeem Ruth and Naomi that Boaz could step in and do it. And so at the end of chapter three, there's this tension that's running high, and everything feels like it's in chaos, and if the story might come to completion. And so Boaz tells Ruth to return home to Naomi and just wait. And the first thing in the morning, he's going to go settle the matter. And either this guy will step up to be the redeemer that they need, or he will. And so that brings us to the climax of the story in Ruth chapter 4. And this grand story of redemption, it's so good. Let me, let me read it to you. It begins this way at the beginning of chapter 4. Meanwhile, Boaz went up to the town gate, and he sat down there just as the guardian redeemer had mentioned, he had, he had mentioned came along. And Boaz said, come over here, my friend, and sit down. And so he went over and he sat down. And Boaz took 10 of the elders of the town and he said, sit here. And, and they did so. And then he said to the guardian redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from Moab, is selling the piece of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. And I thought I should bring the matter to your attention and, and suggest that you buy it in the presence of these seated here and in the presence of the elders of my people. And if you'll redeem it, do so. But if you will not, tell me so I will know. For no one had the right to do it except you, and I am next in line. Well, I'll redeem it, he said. 
And then Boaz said, well, on the day that you buy the land that Naomi, uh, from Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the dead man's widow, in order to maintain the name of, of the dead with his property. At this, the guardian redeemer said, well, then I cannot redeem it because I might endanger my own estate. You redeem it yourself. I, I cannot do it. Now, in earlier times in Israel, for the redemption and the transfer of property become final, one party took off his sandal and gave it to another. And this was the method of legalizing transactions in Israel. So the guardian redeemer said to Boaz, buy it yourself, and he removed his sandal. Then Boaz announced to the elders and to all the people, today you are witnesses that I have bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech and Kilion and Malon, and I also have acquired Ruth the Moabite, Malon's widow, as my wife, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property, and that his name will not disappear from the family or from his hometown. Today you are witnesses. Then the elders and the people at the gate said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the family of Israel. May you have standing in Ephrathah, and may you be famous in Bethlehem. Though the offspring of the Lord gives you, through the offspring of the Lord, the Lord gives you by this young woman, may your family be like that of Perez, who bore Tamar to Judah. And so Boaz took Ruth, and, he, and she became his wife. And he made love to her, and the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. And the woman said to Naomi, the women said to Naomi, Praise be to the Lord, who this day has not left you without a guardian redeemer. May he become famous throughout Israel. He will renew your life, sustain you in your old age, for your daughter-in-law who loves you and is far, who is better to you than seven sons, has given him birth. Then Naomi took the child in her arms and cared for him. The woman living there said, Naomi has a son, and they named him Obed, and he was the father of Jesse, the father of David. This then is the family line of Perez. Perez was the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Abinadab, and Abinadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz, Boaz the father of Obed, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David." See, the overarching storyline throughout the whole book of Ruth, this short little narrative hidden, tucked away in the pages of the Old Testament, it's the storyline of redemption. And in this final passage, we see the, the author highlighting three really important things about redemption that we need to see if we're going to understand not only the whole point of the book, but how it also connects with our lives today. Redemption is this theme that runs through the through line of the story, and especially in our passage. And the, the first thing that the author wants to see about in this passage, he wants us to help us see, is the cost of redemption. See, the passage opens and we see Boaz is a man on a mission, right? First thing in the morning, he heads straight to the city gate, the place where official business always would have taken place and would have happened. And he's not messing around. He's not lollygagging, right? Like he wants things to get settled, right? He wants this matter to be finished and done. And he gets there, right? The passage says, just as this other near redeemer happens to come along, which uh, just spoiler alert, uh, by this point in the story, it becomes real clear whenever there's a coincidence in the story, it's never a coincidence, right? Like God's always the one orchestrating all of these things behind the scenes, right? It's just another example of the many ways that God's really the one who's sovereignly weaving together this grand story of redemption. And so 
Boaz, he pulls this guy aside and he tells him about this incredible opportunity in front of him. Verse 3, right? He says, Naomi is selling this piece of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. And just like, hey, I just wanted you to know, bro, like there's this great opportunity for you ahead of you right here, right? Um, and, and you have the right to redeem this land. And so this guy, he is sitting there thinking like, wow, what a great opportunity has just like fallen into my lap. This seems amazing, right? Not only is land hugely important in an agrarian society, it is hard to come by. And so he's thinking, who would turn this down, right? Like there's basically no downside for him. So he gets a great piece of land that he can use and then one day pass down to his sons. And, and he, all he has to do in return is bring Naomi into his family and take care of her, right? She's a widow. She's past childbearing age, right? Like cost is real low for this transaction. And so in the grand scheme of things, it seems like this very small price to pay for such a huge benefit of land, right? It's a it's like a no-brainer for this guy. And yet, the guy, so the guy says, of, of course, of course then I'll redeem it. Uh, yeah, obviously. And you're thinking, Boaz, dude, what are you doing? Like, I thought you were like, I thought you wanted to be the dude, right? Like, you kind of served it up to this dude on a silver platter. Like, what is going on here, man? All right, but then we get to verse five and we see Boaz knows exactly what he's doing. He says, oh, oh yeah, I, I just forgot one other thing, small detail, right? But just, you know, fine print, you might want to be aware. Uh, on the day you buy the land from Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the dead man's widow, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. Right, he says, if you decide to redeem the land, it's, it's not just Naomi that you have to take care of, it's, it's Ruth as well. And not only is she a Moabite, She's young, and unlike Naomi, she can still have kids, which means that being the redeemer gives you the responsibility to provide for her an heir who can carry on the family name and can carry on the land of the family that you'll be purchasing. And so all of a sudden, the, the land that this guy's envisioning in his mind is this huge asset that's going to be a benefit for him. It goes from a huge asset to this huge liability, right? It's not only going to cost him up front, he's not even going to get the land in the end. He's going to give it back to, to the son that he helps to father. And so in one verse, like this offer has gone from all upside to all downside, Verse 6, he says, I can't redeem it because I might endanger my own estate. You redeem it then. I cannot do it. Right? In other words, he says, on second thought, no. Right? Like, nah, it's not, sorry, spoke too soon, not going to work out for me. See, Boaz had revealed the true cost of redemption. And what's real clear is that the cost is high. It is a high cost. To act as the guardian redeemer wasn't just some personal benefit to you. It was a sacrifice that you made for the good of another. It was a cost this near kinsman was either unable or unwi unwilling to pay. And yet Boaz is absolutely willing to do it. Right? He has counted the cost. He has understood the situation. He knows what the sacrifice will mean, and yet he has chosen to act as the guardian redeemer. He's not only able, he is willing, and now he has the right to do it. And so Boaz says, all right, let's do this. Everyone, everyone's here. He announces in verse 9, right? Today you are witnesses. I've brought from, uh, I have bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech and Kilian and Malon, and I've acquired Ruth the Moabite, Malon's widow, as my own wife in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property so that his name will not disappear from among his family or from his hometown. Today you are witnesses. 
See, and that brings us to the second thing about redemption that you have to see. See, the passage highlights for us the response to redemption. And it does it in two really important ways. You see, everyone gathered there. They had seen the the redeeming love of Boaz, and now they were witnesses. They were to be witnesses of that to others. They were to tell others what they saw and experienced. And what they had seen was incredible. See, Boaz was a wealthy and respected Israelite man, and he chooses willingly of his own accord to sacrifice not only his current finances, but also his own future inheritance in order to rescue and redeem Ruth, a destitute, widowed foreigner, and her own mother-in-law. And he graciously brings these two marginalized women into his family, these easily forgotten women. He brings them into his esteemed family, and he showers them with favor and with blessing, right? Right? Not because there's some huge financial upside for him and not because he needs somebody to love him. He's already well-liked and well-respected and not because people will respect him more that his name would be great. In fact, everything he's doing is ensuring that someone else's name will be made great. And we'll continue to have a legacy. See, instead we see the sacrificial action of Boaz is a man who is reflecting the redeeming love that God has already showed him. See, Boaz sees where he's at in the grand storyline of redemption. One commentator sums it up this way. Through the self-sacrificing act of Boaz, Ruth had been established as belonging within the people of God. Boaz had shown in practice what he believed to be true about God's actions towards his people, that those who are redeemed are to be agents through whom others find redemption. Those who are redeemed are to be agents through whom others find redemption. It's out of the overflow of the way God has graciously related to him and blessed him that Boaz chooses to redeem Ruth and Naomi. He wasn't under any obligation. He didn't have to do it. It wasn't his duty. He was not the closest relative, and yet he chooses to go far and above and beyond all that is required and expected. It's this incredible reflection of God's own grace and love for his people in redeeming them. And in response, the people say in verse 11, we are witnesses ourselves. They get it. They see what he's doing. They see the cost that he is bearing. They see the sacrifice that he is making. They see the the future that he is bringing to this hopeless family. And And they tell him, we will tell others of what we have seen here. The way that you respond to the encountering the redeeming love of God is to bear witness about it to others. The way you respond to the redeeming love of God is to bear witness about it to others. See, too often I think people think that that the mission of making disciples requires you have some special gifting in evangelism, that you have some super special story or whatever it might be, some extra levels of spiritual wisdom to pass on to somebody. And yet the truth is, is that everyone who has encountered the redeeming love of God is simply called to be witnesses to the story. To tell the story of God's sovereign and gracious and sacrificial redemption in their own lives. Let me just shoot straight with you. There are few things, precious few, that are more life-giving, that are more joy-filled than getting to be a witness to all that Jesus has done in redeeming you. To recount his redeeming work in your own life. To see how he's brought you from emptiness to fullness 
to proclaim how he has been the one who has met you in despair and brought life and joy, to be the one who has seek to proclaim him as the one who has redeemed and renewed. And if you need help to learn how to do that well, it's one of my favorite things to do is to help people think about sharing their stories. So come find me. Let me help you with that. See, but the invitation is not that we have some master plan, but is that like the crowds and like Boaz, we bear witness. We testify to the redeeming love of God that we have seen and that we have experienced. We make much of his story, not our own. And so we've seen in the, the story, we've seen the cost of Ruth's redemption, and we've seen the, the response to that redemption. And as the book ends, what we see is actually God's grand purpose for Ruth's redemption. We see God's grand purposes for it. It seems odd that the story doesn't end with some triumphant wedding scene, right? After three chapters of buildup, you get one verse, right? They got married, they had a baby, moving on, right? And uh, instead, the story concludes with a close-up shot of Naomi, right? The, the mother-in-law, the grandmother, she's holding her grandson. The book opens with three funerals. It ends with a wedding and a baby. It's this picture that highlights how the sin and rebellion and death and emptiness that set the stage for the story of redemption has been replaced with grace and love and life and fullness. But not just for Naomi and not just for Ruth, but for you and me as well. You see the post credit scene in the book of Ruth, that little snippet at the end, right? It's a genealogy and we find out that Ruth and Boaz's son was named Obed. He was the father of Jesse, who was the father of David. That's King David. You see, the book begins in the days of the judges. Right? And the book of Judges tells us there, were no, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did as they saw fit. And yet it ends with the introduction of the most famous king in Israel's history and the realization that this whole story has been about something much, much greater than we ever could have imagined. See this heartwarming yet seemingly insignificant story of redemption tucked away in the pages of the Old Testament history is actually meant here to point us towards the grand story of redemption on the front pages of God's story. You see, the where this genealogy leaves off, the Gospel of Matthew picks up and begins, and name after name, it traces the history of this, of this son, all the way down to Jacob, who is the father of Joseph, and the husband of Mary, who gave birth to Jesus, who is called the Messiah, the King. You see, the story of Ruth is meant to point us to a king greater than David and a redemption greater than Ruth's. This whole story is meant to point us towards God and the gospel and his plan of redemption for all people through Jesus. See, the way we're meant to read the story of Ruth is that it is a microcosm. It's the embodiment in one small story of God's grand story of redemption. You see, just like God was at work planning Ruth's redemption and Naomi's redemption, in the midst of all this sin and rebellion and chaos that controlled their lives, since sin entered the world enslaving humanity and separating us from him, God has been plotting the redemption of all peoples. It's the whole story of the Bible. And we see in the person and the work of Jesus, God's grand plans of redemption for humanity, they're finally accomplished. And just like Boaz's redemption of Ruth, God's plan of redemption is this scandalously good news. 
Like Ruth, Ephesians 2 tells us that we are by nature dead in our sin, deserving of wrath, excluded from citizenship among God's people, foreigners to the covenants of promise, without hope and without God in the world. But it goes on in verse 4 of Ephesians chapter 2 to tell us that because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in our transgressions and sins, for it's by grace that you've been saved. See, like Ruth scavenging for extra grain in the fields, deserving no attention and no favor from Boaz, you and I deserve no attention and no favor from God. And yet, like Boaz, God not only notices us, but he shows us the abundant favor and the generosity that makes Boaz's look pale and simple and weak. He willingly pays the price for our redemption so that you and I might be brought into his family. That word redemption means to buy, to purchase, to set free by paying a price. And that's what Boaz does for Ruth and Naomi. And that's exactly what Jesus does for us on the cross. See, redemption is this costly sacrifice. The problem of sin was so great that it required the death of God's very own son. And so Jesus willingly pays that price for us. He lived the life we could not live, a life of perfect obedience, one without sin. And on the cross, he trades places with us. He gives us his reward and his inheritance. And, we, and he takes on our sins so that like Ruth, you and I might be adopted into his family and given a, a hope and a future where only there was hopelessness and death before. And so we go by faith in the gospel from being foreigners and outcasts to being family of God. We're no longer slaves and strangers, but God calls us sons and daughters, and not because we've earned it, not because we've deserved it, but he does it because of his grace. See, and it's the good news of God's scandalous, redeeming grace that we remember and that we celebrate every week when we take communion together. See, we're reminding ourselves that he was not only able to rescue and redeem, but that he was willing to pay the cost for our redemption. So that foreigners and sinners like Ruth and like you and like me might become part of his family, given a new hope and a future. And so communion doesn't make you right with God and it doesn't save you and it doesn't change your status or your standing with him. Instead, communion is a chance for us to remember the redeeming work of Jesus, our glorious Boaz, our guardian redeemer. And so that in remembering his redeeming love for us, that we in turn might be filled with the kind of love and gratitude for him that overflows into a life not only lived unto him, but a life that joyfully proclaims and bears witness to his redeeming work in our lives to others. And so as we sing and as we worship and as we remember the gospel together in song, if you've put your trust in Jesus to be your redeemer, then whenever you're ready, in joy and in thankfulness, go back and take communion. There's a, two tables, one in the back on the left and on the right, and you can dip the bread in the juice as a reminder of his body and blood, which were broken the high cost that was paid so that you and I might be forgiven and redeemed and brought into his family. But if you're here this morning and you don't yet know Jesus as your redeemer, 
You're still figuring out what that even means. And, and if following him is the thing that you're after, then I just want you to hear this. You are welcome here and welcome in this community. And your questions are welcome and your process is welcome and your doubts are welcome. But I would encourage you this morning, hold off on taking communion. God is not after religious rituals and going through the motions. He's after your heart. And so instead of taking communion, we might encourage you this morning to come and to receive Jesus himself. You see, the best news of all is that Ruth's story can become yours. That her story of redemption can become yours if, like her, you will admit that you are in need of rescue and redemption. And in humility and faith that you might ask God, like Ruth had did of Boaz, to be your redeemer. And the good news of the gospel is not only that he is able, but that he has shown and proved himself willing to do it. And so when you ask him to be your redeemer, not only does he sovereignly and graciously do all that is needed, paying the price for redemption, giving up his own inheritance so that you might receive it, like he does, like, Booth do, like Boaz does through Ruth towards Naomi, God makes you a channel of his redemption in the lives of others. And so the good news of, gospel is, of the gospel is not just that you get a new identity, but that you get purpose. The kind of purpose that fills and fuels all of life. And so as we take communion, as we sing, I want to encourage you, wherever you're at this morning, talk with God. For those of you who are here and you have not yet trusted Jesus to be your redeemer, you have not asked him to pay the price for your redemption, I want to encourage you, be honest with God about what's keeping you from doing that. For some of you, you're here and the thing that's keeping Jesus from being your redeemer is your own pride and self-sufficiency. And you, cannot be, you, cannot, you are unwilling to admit that you either need saving in the first place or that you cannot save yourself. Others of you are here and it's a doubt or a fear or a sense of unworthiness. You can't possibly imagine that a God like him might be willing to pay the price required for you. And so wherever you are at this morning, I want to encourage you, bring those things to God. Let him meet you in the midst of your need for redemption. For those of you who have trusted Jesus, to be indeed your glorious Boaz, the one who redeems you, who pays the cost for your redemption. And tell him how thankful you are. Respond to him as we sing this morning with joy and gratitude for the cost he has paid for you. Ask him to well up in you a heart of gratitude and worship. Ask him to use you like he used Ruth and Boaz to be a channel of his redeeming work in the lives of others. And ask him to help you see the opportunities he has given you to bear witness of his redeeming love in your own life. And ask him to give you the kind of joy and the kind of boldness to tell others that story. You see, the book of Ruth is not here so that you and I might sit back and enjoy a heartwarming story of redemption. It's here so that you and I might be invited into that story. To be the ones like Ruth who receive it. And to be like her and the crowds, those who bear witness about it by proclaiming the greater story of redemption that her story is meant to point us to. 
You see, the story of Ruth is this incredible reminder of God's sovereignty and love and grace to rescue and redeem a people who cannot save themselves. But it's also this reminder that God not only includes ordinary people in his redemptive plans, but he uses ordinary people to accomplish them as well. See, we're not just redeemed from something, we're redeemed for something to be witnesses of his redeeming purposes in our lives and in the world. See, Boaz and Ruth and Naomi, they had no idea how God would use their story to point people towards Jesus. And you probably don't know how God's going to use your story to do it either. But pray that he will. Ask him that he might. For your joy and for the redemption of those around you, and most of all, so that he might be glorified as the great and true Redeemer. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we come to you this morning and we are humbled by this grand story of redemption tucked away in the pages of this short book of Ruth in the Old Testament. And we ask God that you might cause us not just to, to be encouraged or entertained by this story of redemption that you've given for us, but that you might help us to be filled with a sense of awe and wonder and life and joy, that just like thankful worship that pours out to you today and every day. And so, God, thank you that when we were hopeless foreigners like Ruth, God, you sent your own son and you showed us favor and when we were stuck in sin and emptiness like Naomi, that you, you were sovereignly planning our redemption. And things that like Boaz, you were not only able but willing to pay the price of our redemption. And so Jesus, fill us with love for you. Our glorious Boaz, our great Redeemer, so that we might live lives of worship unto you and that we might bear witness to your redeeming love throughout the world, we pray. Amen.